We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. What we're going to look here, this is the last thing that Jesus will ever say to the crowd. From chapter 13 on, he's going to be speaking only to the disciples. This is his last public annunciation. And you would expect what it's going to be about. It's going to be about true spirituality. In verse 8, or 38, 39, and 40, it's going to begin with the world word, beware. Do not be like these guys. And then in verse 41 through 44, it's going to be, behold, this is what we want. These are not what we want. This is what we do. We're going to say goodbye to this standard of spirituality that has grown so corrupt from the uh, intertestamental period on, and we're going to go with something new. The beware guys are going to be the scribes. The behold girl is going to be a widow. This is a famous story. When I say, uh, you fill in the deal here, the good Samaritan, the prodigal, the widow's might. She's become uh, immortal, and we don't know her name. The other two were from parables that didn't happen. Literally, Jesus made them up as parables. This one does. We don't know her name, but she influenced us, as I'll show you as we finish up here, all the way in the 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's going to refer to this woman. Well, what the text is about is about the nature of true spirituality. Stay with me here. In the uh, first century, uh, the standard of true holiness was the apostles and the apostolic writings, the canon that illuminated through the nature of the Bible. And then once Nero came to power through the second century going into or into the third century, uh, that's when they started putting us to death. Ten Roman emperors started putting Christians to death. And the standard of spirituality was now the martyr or the confessor that was willing to go to the death. And then once Constantine came and Christianity became a national religion, uh, it was like, there goes the neighborhood. Now anybody and everybody wanted to be a Christian because you could move your way up in society being a Christian. And so you had a group of guys that came out from the city and they were hermits and monks. And they would begin communities of just trying, a lot of times asceticism, but trying to live in a holy way and not like the rest of the Roman world. And then uh, as you go into the rest of the uh, Middle Ages, that you see now the church gained ascendancy in the papacy. And uh, the Pope at the same time became kind of the head of the state and head of the church, and then everything went into what they call the dark ages. And holiness was guys and girls that would remove themselves from the church proper, and they would go into monasteries, and they were, they were called uh, Cistercians, Dominicans. You ever heard of Francis of Assisi, of Franciscans, uh, of uh, Order of the Sacred Heart, of nuns and, and uh, folks that would withdraw simply to live a life that was not just religious motions, 
but of true spirituality. And generally, the spirituality wasn't biblical. It was mystical. You ever heard of uh, Joan of Arc or of Teresa of Avila or Catherine of Siena? Don't worry about it. But they were people that kind of began their own little withdrawals there. And then you saw the Protestant Reformation. And now it, the, the holy were those that came out from the entire organism of corrupted, church, Chris, corrupted Christianity. Luther, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Calvin, Beza, Bootzer of uh, the Anabaptist, the uh, Anglicans, both of them, okay. Uh, then after that, the, the Methodists began to separate. And so you saw the reformers. But what happens, if you know your history, the Protestants and the Catholics started killing each other. And it got to where Christianity was basically Protestant Catholicism, that you were a Christian because you were baptized as a Lutheran or as a reform guy or a, um, oh, let's see, as an Anglican or one of these guys. And so you had the same kind of dead spirituality. And the, and the Catholics and the Lutherans would fight and the denominations now would fight over litanies and over um, confessions and over creeds. And the, the uh, pulpits were all, you know, uh, forensic speaking just on challenging and validating your particular denomination. And countries followed. You ever heard of the 30 Years' War where we killed one out of four European men of Catholics and Protestants going at it? And so what happened within this now was called pietism that you saw started in Germany. Groups of guys that saying, you know, being born a Catholic doesn't make you a Catholic, and being born a Lutheran doesn't make you a Lutheran, and being born a, a Dutchman doesn't make you a Christian because you're born in, in Holland of the Calvinist, and you're not a Christian because you're Anabaptist, and you're not a Christian because you're this, and you started seeing pietism. They began meeting now in small groups. Y'all ever heard of John Wesley? Well, he was an English pietist. Uh, you ever heard of the Puritans, the Pilgrims? And they began saying, you know, we, we meet in small groups within our denomination, a church within a church. And they started doing things that were revolutionary. They started having Bible studies that all of them would come to the Bible. This was after Gutenberg, where everybody now had a Bible. And you began doing what was called, you ready? Personal quiet times, scripture memory, prayer request. They would hold each other accountable. They would confess their sins. You began missionary societies that there was um, free giving to keep these guys out there. We were now doing uh, missions work to people that didn't hear the gospel, and you had to have a testimony before they would let you in that group. You had to have an event, an encounter with Christ where you were born again. One of the friends of Wesley was a guy named Whitfield. A woman said to him one time, in uh, New England, why do you always say you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. And so that was called the pietism movement. And then you had rationalism come in and it attacked inerrancy. So you had the phenomena of liberalism, of Christianity that was just a shell. And you had guys within the denominations that started coming out from it, leaving it. And they were called evangelicals because they believed in the evangel, that God had spoken inerrantly in his Bible about Christ and that message, that evangel should be preached 
and believed, and they were called the evangelical movement. And as they got nastier, they were called fundamentalists. Okay. And uh, they started their own seminaries, one of them being Dallas, and here we are. So really, church history, if you wanted to teach church history, what you could use as a guide are those little Russian dolls that you keep taking one out of the other one that keeps going down. That's kind of the way that church history has been. If you look at the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 that are an outline of church history, you see the Russian doll. It just gets getting smaller. And so that is what this is all about. What is real spirituality? Well, beware and behold. He speaks to the common people, and he says in verse 38, here's what we don't want. And this is a seismic, tectonic movement. Verse 38 through verse 40 in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew 23. The whole chapter has eight rebukes, and it is Christ turning on his own people. And he is saying, we don't want this, that we've been surrounded since the Greeks of the intertestamental period, since about 175 BC, we've been surrounded by sects, S-E-C-T-S, okay. We've been surrounded by sects within the faith, each with their own idea of spirituality. This is what we want. And so he says in 38, beware of these guys who like to walk around in long robes, put down the word identification they had on their spiritual letter jackets so you knew who they were, in long robes. Anybody ever watch The Chosen? Whenever the leaders show up, it's like the Thanksgiving Day parade, all right? Everybody can tell that they're on the scene because of their austerity. So they had robes to identify them, and then they liked respectful greetings. That's called recognition. They want you to know who they are, and they want you to recognize their greatness. And then they liked the chief seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor. Now they want to be honored on their recognition. At the synagogue, everybody would sit facing the... Uh, the place of teaching called the seat of Moses, except these guys. They would have their back to you and they would sit out looking at the crowd. So they had the best seats. This is where if you were really sharp, you got to sit. And they liked the best places of honor at the banquets. You got to sit up near the guy throwing it. So you got all the attention of the waiters. And so they're VIPs. And yet what Christ is going to say is that in verse 40, at the banquets, this is what they ate. They ate widows' houses, and they offered long prayers. One commentator has said, and I think it's good, the meaning of devouring widows' houses. These leaders were not salaried. They were paid by the giving of the nation. And so they could make whatever they could. And some of them found ways to buy the land of widows, foreclose on the house, and take it for themselves. Others found that they could get these people that are by nature weak, and you could sponge off them. Uh, in our present-day society, we have a term now called elder abuse. 
that did anybody, has anybody else had uh, loved ones, old folks, parents? My wife and I had one that we had to monitor the phone calls because of marketers that would target them and take from them. And so we had to start uh, knowing who was calling and picking up the phone. And so they market these widows and they sponge off of them. They devour their houses. They're easy marks. And then one commentator said that in verse 40, they would follow this taking the money with long prayers. And they would pray for this woman and her, her bad circumstances after they put them there. And they would do it in verse 40, for appearance sake, that I'm not guilty, even though I took the money. Listen to how I'm praying. Christ said, these will receive greater condemnation. Does that remind you of a verse? Jesus' little brother, half-brother in a sense. Let not many of you become teachers, thus incurring greater condemnation. Who said that? James, chapter 3, verse 1. Whenever you take advantage of people by means of God's word, you're in a heap of trouble. Y'all remember a couple of guys named Nadab and Abihu, sons of Moses that came to work drunk. And in the book of Leviticus, they didn't come by means of the fire of the altar. They made their own fire and fire came out and consumed them. Always a tip off. God doesn't like what you're doing right there. It consumed them. You remember a couple of guys named Hophni and Phineas that they were laying with the women who served in the temple and that they would take the sacrifices that were given and instead of taking what belonged to them, they would dip a pronged hook in there and bring it out and say, I don't want meat that the fat is cooked off. I want the best. And they'd say, you can't do that. That's for the, yet for God alone then I'll take it by force, and they would take it. And uh, God sent a guy named Samuel that came to a guy named Eli that let that go on, that said, you and them two are dead men. And so God doesn't appreciate that happening, of using a position of leadership to work to, to fleece the flock. And so Jesus says they will receive greater condemnation. Verse 41, uh, and incidentally, in Matthew 23, it takes a whole chapter because we're writing to the Jews. And the last couple of verses are, are really explain what he mean by greater condemnation. Remember when Christ talked about blind leading the blind? You're both going to fall into the pit. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this, uh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a hen does her chicks, and you were unwilling. When a hen gathers her chicks, it's because a shadow of a hawk flies over, and they run up under mama. And Jesus said, there's a hawk coming in 70 A.D., 
how I wanted to gather you and protect you from what's coming, but you were unwilling. From now on, your house, Jerusalem, is gonna be left to you desolate. What happened in 70 AD? Jerusalem was destroyed, and after desolation, there was deportation. The Romans sent them out all over the Roman Empire. And then there was darkness. He said, you will not see me again until you're willing to say something. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's at the second coming, prefaced by the church age of desolation, deportation, and darkness. So thank you, scribes, for leading the nation into error whereby judgment would come. So when he said greater condemnation, he meant that. Incidentally, after the 70 AD destruction, we never see a Pharisee, a Sadducee, or a scribe ever mentioned again. They were wiped from the face of the earth. And so in verse 41, after that bit of encouragement, in verse 41, we go from beware to behold. Replacement. This is what I want. He sat down opposite the treasury. Now, let me tell you what the treasury was. In the temple, which is a big area, if, uh, if you've been on any of our Israel trips, they, uh, when we go to Jerusalem in the last three days, we go up on the temple mount. And it's all cleared off now. Uh, the temple was destroyed. The Muslims came in later. They built the Dome of the Rock that has a mosque that around the rim of it has Arabic that says God is not a father and he has no son. And so if you're a Christian or a Jew and you go up there, you have to go with a little trepidation of being aware of your surroundings because it's Muslim run. But it's bigger than a couple of football fields. It's big. And when you're looking from the Mount of Olives down on that famous shot, that famous photograph that you see, the Dome of the Rock, that it takes up an enormous space in there. Well, that was the temple complex. And in the temple complex, the initial place you would go into was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it would end at a certain spot with a wall that says, trespass and die. And then the next place was called the Court of the Women. And that's where all the Jews proper could go. Beyond that, no woman could go into going into the holy place. And then into the last one, the holy of holies, only the high priest in it. And so this was the court of the women, which is why you're going to have a widow there. And during the feasts, uh, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, uh, and the four other events that responded to them, you, could, you would go there and in the court of the women, it would hold 15,000 people the court of the women. And at, at Passover, everybody's there. So this is like the Easter parade. Everybody's there. If you were looking from above, you wouldn't have found Jesus in the 12. They're in the gaggle of people. And in that court, there were 13 different bronze receptacles. And they had openings on them like a trumpet. They were made of brass. And so you could walk all the way around the perimeter of that place and you could put your money in. And when you gave your money, a lot of times you had a little band accompany you 
And so you would go with your band heralding your way, and then you would change your money into the lowest denomination of coin, and you would throw it into the trumpet. Smash! Then you would move to the next one. Smash! And you would go to the next one, and you would try to go to all 13 trumpets, and they were all marked as to where the money would go. So everybody knew what you were doing. It was a show, all right? Well, uh, in verse 1, he notices how the rich are putting money into the treasury. Everybody's looking because it's all for show. And then in verse 42, somebody else comes. And she's not doing a religion for the eyes of men. She is a poor widow. She came and put in two lepta. A lepta is worth one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Two of them, one thirty-second of a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. So we would say maybe she's putting in 20 cents, putting in a quarter. And it amounts to a cent. That's what she put in, a tiny amount. And calling the disciples, and this is the, now he's beginning to speak to specifically his men. This is a break in the narrative. If Spock were here, are you with me? Is that Spock? That's Mork and Mindy. But that's Spock, yeah. If Spock were here with his Vulcan rational mind, he would say, Captain, we have a shift. We're not speaking anymore to the people. We're talking to the guys that are men of the future that are going to go where no one has ever gone before. Spock, okay. And he's giving a completely new standard of worship. Why is he doing it in the treasury? Would you agree that money quite often can dictate your heart? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so this woman puts in this small amount, and Jesus states in verse 43, this poor widow put in more than all the, contra all the contributors. You can add all that they did together. This woman did more. When Christ says more, he has a view of more that nobody else has. It's not quantity. It's the quality of the heart that offered it. One guy said it's not uh, portion, it is proportion. In other words, he didn't look at what these women, this woman gave. He looked at what this woman kept question. How can he know that the rich guys gave out of their surplus? Maybe they gave everything. This woman gave out of her poverty. How does he know? Are you telling me that Christ can look into the heart and the checking account that you give to know if it was sacrificial or if it was just off the top? Can he do that? In Matthew, he said, when you pray, go into your closet, and your Father who hears in secret will hear you. When you give, 
Don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, don't put on a long face to impress everybody, but shave yourself, take a bath, and it's between you and your Father who sees in secret. So are you telling me that when a human being offers an offering, God looks at the heart? The Bible says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, but the prayer of the upright is God's delight. He looks at the heart. Y'all remember a guy named Cain and a guy named Abel? He received Abel's firstlings of the flock because they were sacrificial. Cain took some stuff from the field and threw it down, and God turned away from it because that, the heart wasn't involved. In Malachi, they would offer up the diseased of the animals and use sacrifice as a landfill. And God said, you're robbing God. I know what you're doing. He sees the heart. And so they put in out of their surplus. They didn't give according to their wealth. They gave out of their wealth. Kind of like in the Depression when, uh, oh, I believe it was... Uh, Rockefeller that would go down through New York and he would give dimes to the children. Well, that was nice, but he was making about a million dollars a month before taxes. They didn't have taxes. He gave out of his wealth, not according to his wealth. They gave out of their surplus. I know that it didn't cost them anything. She gave out of her poverty all that she owned. One guy said it like this, men see the check, God sees the stub. Men see what you gave. God sees what you kept. It is all she had to live on. One commentator said she could have kept one of these coins for herself, but she didn't. She gave it all. She gave till it hurt, passed when it hurt, till it felt good. And she trusted God. Would you say, do y'all know that verse that says, uh, God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Y'all familiar with that? The verse previous says this. Uh, I have heard from Epaphroditus what you have sent, money. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You have given yourself into poverty. Next verse, God knows that. And God is going to take care of you. This woman did an act of faith, an act of sacrifice that was motivated uh, by a heart of love, of trust. And he saw what she put in, that she was going to go away and trust God to take care of her. And he said, gentlemen, take a look because that is what we want. Y'all with me? Everybody feel guilty? That's why we're here. Okay. Now, let me give you just a little, I'll give you a good illustration. One of our staff members, Jerry Falbo, did you make it to church today? I was just wondering. He generally goes to the Lutherans across the street. Yeah. Uh, Jerry is our money manager in our church. And uh, how shall we say it? He's conservative. 
He's tight. Okay. We always say on staff, he throws around nickels like manhole covers. Okay. But Jerry said when he got converted, he had been raised that when the plate came by, you simply pulled out your wallet and see what you had. You gave God a tip. Okay, I'll give him a 20. Ooh, are you really? I'll, I'll give him two 20 cents. And he said after he got converted, nobody told him, but he said that started again, and he gave God a tip of what was left over. He gave God what Chick-fil-A didn't get. Okay. He gave him his change. And he said, he just, he said, something's wrong here. Something's wrong. And we talked about it. He was just a young believer at the time. And I said, yeah. I said, Jerry, you gave out of your surplus. God wants out of your essence. God wants who you are. He wants you to give to him first thing, to give your best. And how much should you give? Should you give a, you know what a tithe means? It means a tenth. Do you know the New Testament never uses the word tithe? Except when it's in a negative sense. You never do that. The New Testament, you don't tithe. In the Old Testament, God took the children of God, the Jew, and he taxed them. That's my land, my rain, my crops, my cattle, and you're living on it. I'm the Lord, you are the vassals. And so you, were, you are taxed, and that's to teach you something. The New Testament never uses the word tithe because we are not children that God has to tax to make sure they do right. We are sons. Uh, whenever you go home to see your mother, you or that are older, and you're, does your mama tell you to be in bed by 10? Not if she's in her, in her right mind. She says no. She doesn't tell you to be in bed by 10. She doesn't tell you to eat your broccoli or she's going to send you to bed because you're not a child. You're a son or a daughter. And so now you act out of love to care for and do whatever you have to do for that parent. Well, that's the same way it is with God. God does not take sons. You and I have had a bar mitzvah. It's called salvation. We become sons. And God does not tax us on a certain amount. So people will say to me, how much should you give? I tell them, well, start where the children did off the top a tenth. But that's not what you give. You give, some people have worked themselves into a corner that sometimes I'll say, let's start with five bucks. And then if God takes care of you, we'll up it to five and a half. And we'll keep moving to see God take care of you. So you give what you would like. I always tell people, give no more than Jesus. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, for your sake became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So that's our standard, is the grace of God. How much should you give? God's not going to tell you, because that's insulting to a child. It's insulting to a son of God to be taxed. And that's why we made a decision a long time ago at Denton Bible. Because all of us as elders at that time had been burned out of, uh, you know, churches where the last 30 minutes would be a fundraiser of every service, you know. And we said, we're not going to do that. Let's put the giving deals on the outside and let's don't talk about it. And so about every three years, we'll do a message on giving that happens to be in the text. 
like this one. We're going to be here till 1.30. So y'all have time <laughs> to think about that. No. But we don't say anything about it. We said, rather, let's do this. Let's teach expositorily about the greatness of God and the depth of his love through Christ. And as money comes up, Philippians 4, this text, you deal with it. You educate. Because we said we didn't want one dime given in this church that was not given because of the love of God. Amen. We didn't want a dime given. Matter of fact, we had a kid one time that decided to renounce his faith. He had grown up, gotten brilliant. He was like 26. And he decided he was going to renounce his faith. And he said he wanted his money back. I said, I beg your pardon? Jerry Fowlbaugh said he wants his money back. I said, he said, we can't do that because we got to do it for everybody. I said, give it to him. Every dime, give him 10 more. We don't want one dime to go down if it's not out of the love of God. Give it back. All that he gave over 10 years, it came to $38.75, I think. I said, give it all back to him. So we gave it to him then some. Give you another story. Number of years ago, probably 25 years ago, we had a guy in the congregation. He just, he, nice, simple guy, worked at a rental place. Uh, dad, he probably didn't make a thousand a month, probably made a hundred a month. And he decided just for fun, he'd do something he'd never done. He'd go play the lottery, scratch a deal just for fun. Well, he scratched off and, and won $20 million. I want to introduce you to Elder Johnson right here. Come on, <laughs> not, not really, I'm sorry. He won $20 million. And he, well, I went, what? And they put, he put in the paper that I'm going to, first thing I'm going to do is help my church. So we were on the cover of the Denton Gazette. All right. I'm going to give it to my church. And so we as an elder, we said, you know, I looked at my seminary notes, lottery, lottery. Again, I couldn't find them. What do you do with this? You know, uh, you remember that time, Kent, you drew an inside straight to Choctaw Village and you wanted to give us $600,000? And we wouldn't let you. Now, we didn't know what to do with gambling money because in, in the realm of gambling, if gambling was an aquarium, the lottery would be a guppy. All right. But we said, what should we do? And one of our elders at the time, name was Ray uh, McFarlane. Is Ray dead? Okay. He, he, maybe he's here. I don't know. Ray said, if you ever heard Ray talk, he always sounded like Jimmy Stewart. Well, uh, uh, if you ask me, and he said, if we take that money, every single time that we build something, everybody's going to say, this is the Texas lottery that's doing that. And the millions that could have been given we were growing pretty well as a church, so that's a pretty substantial gift, but we wouldn't ever die on that. And he said, there's going to be some talk. And he used a story. This is how smart our elders are. He said, do you remember in Genesis 14 when Abraham, a nephew, Lot, gets taken captive by Sodom and by the coalition of kings because he was living in Sodom? And he went away, and Abraham went and defeated them and brought Lot back and brought the goods back, and he saved his nephew Lot. 
And if you remember, when he was on the way back, two kings came out to meet Abraham. One was from Salem, named Melchizedek. One was from Sodom, the king of Sodom. And they both met him in the valley of decision here, right around Jerusalem. And Melchizedek said, praise be God most high has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he brought him out bread and wine to care for his people. And they all fellowshiped like an early communion service over the faithfulness of God. And it said for a first in the Bible, Abraham gave to him a tenth of all because this was a priest and a king that was not part of the Canaanite coalition. He walked distinctly. He was a faithful man. And Abraham gave to him a thanksgiving for what God had done, like a missionary. You're the kind of guy we want to support. May your tribe increase Melchizedek. And then here came the king of Sodom. He says, keep the goods for yourself. Sodom says, I don't want anything. I'm going to give you the king's ransom. I'm going to give you all the money. You just give back to us the people that were taken captive, and that's fine. But Abraham now had a chance to accept from the king of Sodom that were, context, exceeding wicked sinners before the Lord that God judged. And he said, we'll give you all the money. And Abraham didn't take a minute to respond. He said, no, because I have sworn before God Almighty. It's in past tense. He said, I already made the decision because I knew this would happen, that we would win and you would offer me a big king's ransom of money. He said, I have sworn I will not take a thread. I will not take a sandal thong from you. Lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Abraham said, the glory of God has no price, and I'm not going to have the head of sodomy saying, you owe it to us that you are so rich. Isn't that something? And Ray said, oh, if you look at this here, he didn't take the money because he didn't want people saying, so that's why you're so big and strong. He said, if we take that money, people are going to say, that's why you're building a new sanctuary, the lottery. And so we said, no. We said, there's lots of parachurch organizations that would love, take it like a bandit. All right. Grab it in a heartbeat. So he gave to them and we didn't take it. Why? Because the glory of God has no cost. Amen. The glory of God has no cost. And so we made that decision a long time ago that we would not take a dime out of compulsion, but of people like this widow that is now our standard for spirituality. We will not take a dime unless it comes out of a heart. See also Jesus in the story of the widow's mite. It's a tectonic shift. We've never seen this. The closest we come to it is the good Samaritan finding the alien Jew beat up and he stops, takes his clothes for bandage, takes his wine for disinfectant, takes his 
oil for softening the wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, stays the whole night and shut his timing off, pays for his time at the end. He's still in ICU that morning and the good Samaritan leaves and he says to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever else he needs. He gave him a blank check, gave him his credit card. He said, I will pay to you when I return. I'm coming back. And so that Jew would have woken up and said, whoa, all last thing I remember is being worked over. How did I get here? Well, your former enemy saw you. After the priest and the Levite passed by you, because they didn't want to get ceremonially unclean from a dead guy, this guy stopped. Where did these bandages come from? Well, it came from his blazer, I believe. Where did this disinfectant come from? That was from his wine, his Mad Dog 40, I believe. And he poured it all over you and disinfected you. Well, where did this oil come from? That was what he's going to dip his, his uh, matzah in, and he put it on you. Where did this, I can't pay for this. He paid for it. Well, what else am I going to rack up? He said, don't worry, he's going to pay for that too. This is his credit card. I'd like to see that guy. He's not here. He's gone away, but he's coming back. Who is the good Samaritan? Jesus. Yeah. And so that's the standard for giving. It is the love of God. Give no more than Christ. When I was a young feller back, oh, I believe it was 1920, 1922, <laughs> I was driving down to Dallas in my 69 Impala. You should have seen it. Looked like the mothership that was so big. And I was driving to Dallas, and a guy came on the radio. Y'all remember radios? A guy named Warren Wearsby. Buddy, you ever heard of Warren Wearsby? Great old commentator, Bible guy from Moody. And Warren Wearsby came on. He was talking about spirituality. And he said, as a matter of fact, and I remember hoping that I didn't get out of range of the radio, but he said, all of the different groups, the sects in Israel, differed over their view of spirituality. He said, the Pharisees said, let's go back. Let's return to the oral tradition, the Mishnah written down in the Talmud. It's written, and let's go back to 300 years previous and go back to the oral law. Go back, Pharisees. The Sadducees said, no, forget everything after Deuteronomy. Let's don't go back. Let's go on. Let's go with the Greek idea of dualism, flesh and spirit, and they denied the resurrection. They were the liberals of the day. They said, let's go on, and let's really make our faith uh, amenable to the Greeks. Can some Christians ever think that? Let's forget the Bible and let's get more sophisticated. Uh, some said the Essenes, the Dead Sea Scroll guys, they said, let's go out. We think that all Jerusalem and everybody's corrupted. Let's just go live like Amish over here by ourselves. Those were the Essenes, go out. The Zealots said, let's kill Romans. They said, let's go against. And then the Herodians said, let's get along with uh, Herod and the Romans and let's just comply with them. 
let's go with. And so all of those, go back, go on, go out, go against, go with, those were all the different sects, and they all missed it. Jesus, Mr. Wearsby says, and by this time I'm going about 20 on the shoulder, okay? He said, Jesus said, let's go in. Let's go in. Let's go into our hearts in moral honesty before God. First John, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the, uh, the blood of Jesus, we confess our sins, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we confess our sins, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. That's John's view of spirituality. If you're walking honestly in the light of God, in the light of his word, in, the, in gazing upon the visage of Christ in the Bible, you're constantly seeing your sin. Amen? And you're constantly being honest. It's funny, but the word honest in Greek is the opposite of the word duplicity. It means oneness. It means you don't have a religious life and a real life. You're together. David would say in one of the Psalms, unite my heart to fear thy name. And so we confess our sins. Truly holy people are aware of God themselves and of Christ's mercy. They're humbled. They're honest. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, uh, we behold as in a mirror the glory of God. Christ is the mirror that reflects the nature of God. We behold as in a mirror the glory of God, Christ, and are being transformed into that image from glory unto glory, greater and greater glory, as from the Lord who is the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul said holiness is, is to hear a message, to recite a scripture, to go to your Bible and see the image of God in Christ and look at him. The thief on the cross. Do you not fear God? Uh, we're receiving justly what we deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come. When he looked at Christ, he saw himself. The centurion, truly, this man was innocent looking upon Christ. And so that is what really holiness is. It is seeing Jesus and just standing before him and looking at him and then letting God make the amendings that he needs to make. That's holiness. It requires honesty. There's a psalmist that said in Psalm 36, what a verse. He said, transgression speaks like an oracle to the ungodly within his heart concerning the discovery of his sin and his turning from it. The psalmist said that wicked men, that sin speaks like an authoritative oracle, flattering him in his own eyes concerning the recognition of his sin and his turning from it. That sin says, do this, do this. Do y'all remember your pagan days? I remember mine. Uh, I had a moral code basically from the fear of my mother. Okay. 
and the rationalism of not getting caught. But I never can ever recall in 21 years of being a non-Christian of fearing God. I feared getting caught, humiliation, but not God. I never ever prayed and confessed sin. Never did I do that. I never ever made reconciliation with those I had offended. I would, I mean, drive on the yellow line continually where I could die and I thought nothing of God. There was no divided heart within me. I was completely sold out to sin. Uh, there, my transgression spoke to me like an oracle within my heart, flattering me in my own eyes concerning the discovery of my sin and my turning from it. Psalm 76, or 36, I never repented. I never sorrowed. I never entered a church. I never picked up a Bible unless we were about to play Arkansas. You know, like my genie, I need a completion, God. Yeah, man, didn't work, forget it. And so that was my nature. After I became a Christian, I had a new voice. You dig? I had a new voice. It was called the grieving of the Holy Spirit. It was called walking in the Spirit. It was called the mind of the Spirit. It was called the mind of Christ. It was called the new covenant, the law written in my heart. David saw saw Saul where he could kill him and all his buddies said, kill him. This is the day God spoke to you. You're going to be the king. Kill him. Thank you, God. And David said, no, no. You don't put your hand against the Lord's anointed. That came from the Bible. But David snuck up and he cut off the hem of his garment because Saul was in the cave relieving himself, left his stuff outside. He cut it off to let Saul know I could have killed you if I'd wanted to. And the Bible says that if Saul went away, quote, David's heart smote him. Y'all ever been smoted? When you did something and your heart said, no, you shouldn't have done that. That's spirituality. And he stood up to Saul and he said, Father Saul, what is your servant? A mere flea that you're looking for. That's called spirituality. It's honest to God. And this is about her. See if this sounds familiar. The widow performed righteously before God, not men. The widow was not even noticed and she was not applauded by men. Only one person noticed her, Christ. The widow performed an act of righteousness simply out of the love of God. It was not even legal. She was not even tithing. She was giving everything. She went above and beyond law. It may be in the performance of religious duty that she was giving, which was a duty that you have. Jesus said, when you pray, when you tithe, when you fast, when you go to church, when there are duties that we do, can we become mechanical? Sure we can. You check your heart. Fifthly, her act of righteousness was costly. 
Sixthly, it would appear foolish to men. She gave more. All she gave was this. Fellas, you have no idea what I'm looking at. Seventhly, it may be that it's you alone, all by yourself. You're not doing it part of a corporate group. It's you all by yourself. Eighthly, you may be acting in distinction against the supposed spirituality of your culture. You may be a lonely bird doing this. And ninthly, God may use your act for 20 centuries, even though nobody knows your name, because that's what happened to this woman. I'll show you. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which is the leading chapter in your Bible about giving. And in chapter 8, Paul was gathering money from the Gentile churches because there had been a famine in Israel among Jewish Christians, and the Gentile Christians said, let's take care of our Jewish brothers. It's one of the earliest acts of truly ecumenicism, of believers sticking together, no matter who you are. And in chapter 8, verse 1, there was a group of churches that wanted to give. As a matter of fact, in verse 4, they begged Paul. Paul said, I'm not going to take from you. They said, please take from us. They were the church of Thessalonica, the church of Philippi, the church at Berea. They were in Macedon, as in Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. This is not a spiritual place. This is a military installation. This is Fort Hood, all right? This is where the soldiers were. This is a Roman colony. And so these guys had gone through persecution. Paul got run out of Philippi. Paul got run out of Thessalonica. Paul got run out of Berea all the way down to Athens. So these are not the wealthy guys of the church like Corinth. And so he says in verse 1, we wish to make known to you, Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Not the money, but the grace of God. This is what motivated these people, their love of the Lord. I remember one time, uh, Kent, you remember Ned Wilson? Was in our church years ago. He was a Pan Am pilot. And he uh, had flown a lot in Guatemala. Anybody remember the Guatemala earthquake back in the 70s? Just destroyed so much. And he had flown a lot for Pan Am and it broke his heart. And he held a, uh, one of them deals where you run and suffer and give money for it. Yeah. A what? Fundraiser. That's it. Walkathon. That's it. And so everybody gave money for a walkathon. And he, I was close to him. Ned Wilson from Fort Davis, Texas. Anybody? And my wife and I, this was for people that had suffered. And we weren't making a lot of money, but we gave $100. Write that down. We gave $100, my wife and I. And we didn't have that kind of money. We were making all of $400 a month. And we gave $100 for the pen. And I remember Ned was over at our little duplex looking at what had been given. And all of a sudden he went, <laughs> he had seen our $100 bill. And it just overwhelmed him that people this poor, which they still are, people this poor 
in need of money, as they still are, <laughs> would have given. He knew that that, came, that cost us. And that's how Paul feels about these people. The grace of God's been given in the churches of Macedonia, then in a great ordeal of affliction. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. They're losing their jobs. Their abundance of joy. They're not griping. They're not fussing. They're not whining. They are happy. Their abundance of joy. Their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of liberality. Does that sound familiar? They gave not out of abundance, but out of their deep poverty, the wealth of liberality. Scholars believe that is Paul's recitation of the story of the widow's might. That that woman got enshrined 20 centuries later, just doing something out of grace. I remember when I was a young believer, me and my buddy Clark Lawrence were walking across a buddy's parking lot. It's now, a, I forget what it is now. We were walking across there. I was 21 years old. And we went into a buddy's to cash a check. And there was a envelope laying on the ground. And I could see all the suction cup marks on it. People had walked all over it. And I just stopped when I saw it down there. I reached out and picked up the envelope and opened it up. And there was $800 in 50s. And I thought, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Then I thought, maybe this didn't drop out of heaven. And I said, somebody done lost $800 cash. And we walked into the buddies. Old Testament says that if you find money, you don't keep it. You hold it until the guy shows up. And I didn't know that, but this is the grace of God. Somebody had lost some money. We walked inside and told the guy down there, hey, somebody lost $800. And coming out of your place right here. And we looked and we found a little slip in there for an optometrist. And it was for, I'm trying to remember that name, what it was, like Jay, they lived over here on uh, Redbud, right up the street. Is that Redbud? Redbird? Redbud. And we read it and thought, hey, let's go over and see if they're there. And we went over there, right up the street here, and walked in and knocked on the door, and we heard a little old lady with a little old lady's voice. Yes. Are you Mrs. I forget the name. Are you Mrs. Yes. And she came to the door, and she was on one of them little old lady phones that has the cord that stretches like to Dallas, you know. <laughs> she was talking to her little old lady friend. Somebody's at the door. Yes. And we said, ma'am, did you lose something? And she said, glory to God. And she knocked that door open and she grabbed Clark right here and me right here. She was like two foot three. She was right here. And she grabbed us and held onto us and drug us inside and said to her friend, I knew there was good men in the world. And we said, did you lose this? Yes. Her, she was saving money for her husband, who they had found a brain tumor, to go get an operation. She had done hospice care on a woman and made $50 a week. And now she had $800 for a down payment for her husband, a farmer, to get a brain operation. And she just lost the money. We found it. And do you know what? 
That little lady, years later, I went into Grandy's. Remember Grandy's used to be Granny's? And they would get old women to work the deal back there, little white-haired ladies. And I was sitting there eating my whatever, and somebody came and put a Fritz von Erich grab on me right here. And I looked up, and it was her. She'd never forgotten me. And we talked about her husband, how it done, yes, and she just hugged on me and wouldn't let me go. She loved me for simply doing an act of kindness for her. Nobody made me do it. And I told her, I said, I'm a Christian. She said, I am too. And I said, all I could think of was some poor person that lost $800. And then years later, I was over at uh, Safeway. Anybody remember that? And I was, or maybe it was Piggly Wiggly. I can't remember. That's what my mother did. And I was in there and writing a check. And the guy said, who is this? Tom Nelson. And somebody grabbed me from behind. And I looked, and it was a younger woman, the daughter of that woman. And they had passed down my name in tribal fires <laughs> for years. Because I had, as a Christian, I mean, can't, can you keep $800 from some poor lady trying to have a brain operation? And so they never forgot. And that's who the widow's might becomes. And when you trust Christ, that is the first spiritual act you've ever done that is totally altruistic. You recognize for the first time without beating around the bush the existence of God. You recognize the truth of the Word of God. You recognize the existence of sin and your need of a Redeemer. And the Bible opens your eyes and you put trust of eternity in that person. That is the first. Paul said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the first theologically pleasing thing you've ever done is to be brought to the point of God, his word, Jesus, sin, and faith. That's where you start. You know what salvation is like? It's like at night when you're sleeping on your arm and you cut off all the blood. Y'all ever done that? and you roll over, and you've just got an appendage. It's dead. And uh, you got time for another story. <laughs> I had some, Brian Day, Chuck Mork, you remember? They lived over on Oak Street, and they had snakes in their house. They were all terrified of. And one of them named Rick Roberts woke up in the night with something laying on his chest. And he went, ah! and he grabbed it and is strangling that thing. And somebody come in and hit the light. He had fallen asleep on his arm. <laughs> True story. He's now a Christian counselor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, you lay on your arm and it's dead. But once you unimpinge that artery vein, whatever is there, all of a sudden it comes to life. 
That's salvation. You've been laying, you've been cut off from life. When you trust Christ, all of a sudden, you tingle. And now you've got a voice to speak to you. If you hadn't done it, why don't you? And let that little widow in glory, whoever she is, rejoice that another person got converted at her story. Father in heaven, thank you for a good time in your, in your word. Uh, I would rather be no place in the world on a Sunday than here with my brothers and my sisters and the young and the old. We're in a world growing darker every day that the saints of God rejoice in the truth. Thank you for our fair islands, for the church. And I pray that we would uh, listen attentively to what you say in this Christian embassy, that we would listen to what you say, because we've got our rules. They've got theirs. And ours have stood the test of time. May you increase among our young. In Jesus' name, amen.